2022 has been a trying year for investors across virtually every asset class, and public and private credit markets are certainly no exception. Heading into 2023, the outlook remains unclear. One of the benefits of investing in the private credit class, many investors say, is the risk premium that you can get uh, to take illiquidity risk relative to liquid loans. As we, as a group, look at private credit versus public markets, we can see that right now the, the, the steep price discounts in public markets effectively show parity from a yield perspective of public versus private assets. So, so the investors is going to ask this very honest question. Why would I want to allocate to the private market today when I'm getting effectively very similar returns in the public market context? That was Jonathan Bach, CEO of Barings BDC. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Barings. I'm your host, Greg Campion. Coming up on today's show, my colleague Jonathan Bach moderates Barings 2023 Public and Private Credit Market Outlook garnering the latest views from the firm's experts across high yield, private credit, emerging markets, distressed debt, and more. My name is Jonathan Bach, and I work on the BDC team here at Barings, and I'll be your host for the duration of this roundtable discussion. And it's a great turnout, hosting clients and partners from absolutely everywhere, quite a few. And so today we're going to dive into the outlook for the public and private credit markets as we head into 2023. And so you'll notice that we titled the theme of our outlook this year from the bottoms up. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're calling a bottom here, uh, but it more so is a reflection of how the teams here at Bearings choose to look at investment opportunities. We look and see our core markets, and then we bring up our thoughts for a global discussion to decide where strong risk-adjusted returns exist. And so we think real insight can be gleaned when we have these types of discussions like we're having today. And so I'll get started with introductions. And I, I normally think this is probably best to do a, a little bit differently. So to my uh, esteemed uh, panelists, all right? And uh, you know, since it is, you know, we're getting into the Christmas or holiday uh, season, guys, if you could describe your current market as a holiday gift, okay? As a holiday gift. If you could describe your current market as a holiday gift, which one would it be? And you know what, Scott, I'll start with you. Okay, well, thanks, John. Hi, everyone. I'm Scott Roth. I'm co-head of the U.S. High Yield Group. I also manage a number of our global and U.S. bond strategies, as well as some of our multi-asset credit funds. So, John, I guess on the holiday gift front, I'm going to go with a pair of Crocs. Uh, <laughs> they can be really ugly, but somehow have staying power from a brand perspective. I'm not sure if they're re recession proof, but uh, that's sort of how I think about the market environment right now. Because that would uh, that makes complete sense. Uh, every uh, every dad uh, needs a pair of of Crocs in the closet. Excellent, excellent. Tune day, and then we'll go to Adam and Stuart. Mm -hmm. Thanks, John. Uh, my name is Tunde Lawal. I run the EM Corporate Debt team here at Bearings, um, and the team and I sit largely here in London, and we also manage both standalone portfolios as well as blended portfolios with our EM Sovereign team and the various uh, EM, uh, sorry, the various developed market high yield and IG groups. Describing my asset class, I had to give this some thought, and I would say I ended up with a bottle of slow gin. 
And for those in the US who don't know what slow gin is, here in the UK, it's often a gift that you give around the Christmas holidays where people make slow gin from slow berries and gin and they let it steep for a few weeks. And depending on not, it could be an acquired taste. It can have a bit of a kick to it, but eventually you get that feel good from the gin when it comes through. So, you know, a little bit of a kick could be a quiet taste, but it feels good at the end. Love it. Adam? Thanks, John. Uh, so I'm Adam Wheeler. I co-head our uh, private finance platform here at uh, Bearings. Uh, for my sins, I'm on our US, European and Asia-backed investment committees. Um, been here for 13 years, worked in, in leverage finance now for, for 25 plus years. Uh, I'm afraid I'm not as creative as Tunde around the Christmas gift. I think that was actually quite good. I mean, the, the best I could do with 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 us is, you know, in private markets, it tends to be a low reactor. There's been plenty of volatility out there. So I was thinking more along the We're a bit like an ocean liner. So I thought I'd go with like a toy ocean liner for the for my uh, eight-year-old at home would be a, be a better guess. Perfect. 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 Stuart? Thanks, John. Uh, Stuart Matheson. So I lead investments in the uh, Global Capital Solutions Group. Uh, we're the team that's evolved from our special situations platform, uh, running a number of dedicated strategies. Um, for the gifts, I chose Lego. My, my children always get Lego, but I've chosen Lego where nobody decided to put the instructions in the box. Uh, so there's that realisation that there's something really exciting in there. But in order to get to it, you have to think around the solution and, and think how to put it together. So um, very much what my team does, uh, and I'm sure I'm sure I'll be faced with something like that this Christmas. That is uh, that that is fantastic. And so you know what, we'll kick off with a high level macro view. And so uh, heading into the year, both equity and bond markets were near record levels, and largely sanguine about potential risk that the interest rates could ever move materially higher. Right? Markets underestimated the problem of inflation, and now. Right. We've seen one of the worst performances over the last 200 years for the 6040 blend portfolio with U.S. equity returns at roughly 24 percent down and bond returns at 15 percent down or negative 15 percent year to date through September. Interestingly, and this was in discussion with one of our close investment partners, only in 1841 did investors see a more dismal 6040 asset level return. And so I want to ask each of you, right, put on your recreational economist hat, right? We all have them. And tell me, what surprised you the most about the current market environment? And how have your markets over or underreacted to it? We'll start with uh, we'll start with Scott. Okay, so a few things here. Obviously, the most the biggest surprise has, has been the rates, as you mentioned, John. And it's just not the fact that rates are higher, but the order of magnitude of of the move we've seen here. And you know, a few things sort of stand out. You know, one is just how consensus an economic recession became. You know, let's call it by by the middle of this year. Um, and again, I think this is really due to the fact that this business cycle is more conventional or more textbook in in nature, where you've had the strong economy. Um, you've had um, overheated labor markets. You've had these inflationary pressures that the central banks are all trying to, you know, get their arms around here. And um, so this this cycle has been very transparent to the market. The, the market is is very skeptical of um, of the central bank's track record of of navigating a soft landing. So uh, between the higher rates and the fact that recession risks are just more pronounced, you have a lot more discount that's now reflected 
in the bond and, and loan market. That includes higher quality bonds from a, a rate standpoint and lower quality bonds and loans really due to more these macro concerns. And, and to put it in some perspective, lower quality credit has been trading in the 80th plus percentile from a spread perspective. And that's looking back over the past 20 years. So including loans, bonds, and even parts of the structured product market as well. So what that tells us is a lot of negativity is priced in this portion of the market. And that's despite the fact that earnings you know, have really been better than expected. And that's just really the other surprise here is just how durable and resilient the consumer has been despite some of the inflationary pressures. And um, we certainly expect 2023 to be to be more challenged as you have that lagged impact of the the rate moves hitting the economy. But that expected weakness keeps getting pushed to the right. And I think that has surprised, you know, many folks here. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm curious. So, Adam, if we start to think about what surprised you the most uh, in the private markets environment, just given the the rate rise, what would you say? Yeah, I, I think building on some of the things Scott said, I've been surprised at how resilient the book has been so far. I mean, I think if you go back nine months, everyone was talking about wage inflation, um, supply chain issues, and that's been more idiosyncratic, as in company specific, rather than a macro thing for the for for at least our book. So I think that has surprised me. Demand has remained robust. Uh, you haven't seen a lot of margin erosion yet. But again, I think that's all backward looking. I think it's the next couple of quarters we're going to start to see that impact on on uh borrowers. Um, and I think that's that's definitely sorry, the the reaction in the public markets is flowed through slowly into private markets. And I and we could talk about that probably want to talk about that as we go through uh, and how we've reset. But I think you're starting to see that getting reset now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, you know, Tunde, just just a question when you think globally in terms of EM credit, what would you say in terms of surprises? There have been there have been a few. Yeah, we've we've not had a shortage of supplies in in the in our asset class uh, in the last twelve to eighteen months. I'd say the biggest one, clearly, uh, you know, away from the you know the pace and the intensity of the Fed hikes that everyone's spoken about, has been the Russia Ukraine invasion. I think market consensus, and depending on who you spoke to, people assigned lots of different probabilities, but it was always a very low probability that there would be that invasion. So I think that was the biggest surprise of them all, a black swan event, as you as you would call it. Um, and so for us, um, how did our markets react? I, I think in the immediate aftermath, I mean, everything went down to a price of 20. It didn't matter what you were, or so long as you were in that postcode, you went down to sort of the teens. Uh, and that's where we thought our markets probably overreacted because it took a few weeks for people to see through the wreckage and actually realize not everything needed to trade at 20 cents. And then you eventually got a bit of credit differentiation and some things drifted back up to the 40s and the 50s. But I'd say that was probably the biggest surprise for us and our markets initially overreacted. And then we've sort of normalized that um, subsequently as the market has better priced the risk premium associated with things that are non-Russian, but in that region. And Stuart, I'm I'm just curious because it's a good way to start, but not a lot of things surprise folks in special situations because you've seen everything, right? But what would you say has surprised you today? I think I think the speed of the speed of change. Um, we we own businesses, we're, we're very close to a number of businesses, and actually today. A lot of the businesses we invest in are sitting on record profitability and cash flows on a, on a backwards-looking basis. And, it, and it's really the, 
the what's to come piece um, where where I think there's been that significant shift, um, whether it's inflation, whether it's supply chain, energy prices, consumer. I mean, I, I have businesses where uh, I have one business where the cost base used to be 8% energy and it's now 50% energy. Mm. And yet they're still having a very good year. So it's really that speed of change. Um, overall, I think we will see um, defaults pick up, not not to the extent we've seen uh, in in perhaps the the, the the front the GFC, but but I think we will see now a period of shakeout that perhaps has been long overdue given the accommodative policies. Um, so so for me, it's really been the speed and shift of that change. And from a pricing perspective, um, we don't really have an index as such, but I'd say that towards the the low end of the um, the quality space. So companies that, that could run into trouble, I think there's there's the, the scope to gap further down. So I think there's some discount reflected in names, but where companies will re- may, may really struggle, then I think um, it's still uh, good to be cautious because we could still see prices gap, gap lower. Appreciate that, and so you know, perhaps it's important also to take a take a high level look. And as many of you on this call are familiar with, Bearings has an extremely wide investment frame across public and private markets. And if I were going to summarize the perspectives on this call, I'd get people uh, to focus in on three uh, risk premiums. Okay, three risk premiums. There's the first. There's credit risk, which is essentially the risk premium of owning public credit high yield, liquid loan, uh, emerging market, right? Effectively, where you can go and access that risk return in public markets. And that is a a spread over the risk-free rate. Now, then there's the illiquidity premium, all right? And this is going to be in our our middle market or direct lending world, anything like that. That's essentially the spread over the public debt markets or that credit risk premium that's required by investors to take a deal private, right? You can't sell it. And then finally, there's the complexity risk premium, which is for those illiquid transactions that also have a higher degree of complexity, misunderstanding, difficulty, put it in that category. Now, those are the three for our frame on this call, and we have experts that deal in all three risk premiums. And so let's talk about the credit risk premium first, and particularly public credit with high yield. And so, Scott, I want to go go to you first. It's been really rocky, right, in 2022, as you alluded to in our first discussion. And if you look at corporate balance sheets, we're generally at healthy levels. Perhaps the market's overshot. And then the really question is, is today's market valuation, does that foreshadow truly what you believe to be large expected credit losses in your market, i.e. low investment returns? And the answer and question is, do you expect that? Why or why not? Okay, well, let's maybe just level set where defaults are right now. So in the U.S., loans and bonds are both sort of wrapped around this 1.5% default level again that's over the last 12 months and again that's just to be just to be clear that's a par weighted number that is fully loaded that includes distressed exchanges um, and that's a figure published by by JP Morgan that's not our number um, so from our vantage point uh, of course fundamental headwinds are are building so we certainly see expect an uptick in defaults next year but really not anywhere near where the market really is pricing in defaults today. Um, obviously, we've had this you know pretty sizable rally across our markets post-CPI last week. Um, but prior to that, 
the implied default rates, just to stake the, the, the leverage loan market, has been you know at six percent. And so again, that's a lot of bad news baked into that market. And again, there's a lot of different outcomes as we look forward here. But if I had to circle a number right now based upon what I know, that that might that number might be closer to three percent. So double the rate we've seen, um, but a level where we feel. An investor is being overcompensated for default risk right now. And again, this isn't uncommon. When you start to head into stress year periods, um, default expectations are, are going to get thrown around. And, but now I, that, I come back. Go, yeah, I come back to a couple things that that sort of you know why I think this is the case. So number one, we're, we're not that far removed from COVID. So you know we had a real spike in defaults at that point in time, um, and I sort of view that as a bit of a cleansing process and. Um, and then you had capital markets that reopened in 2020 and what took place. Um, we expect, ex- experienced a, really a record amount of refinancing volume. I think really the, the number was actually north of a trillion dollars. So that's, again, loans and bonds. And that's important because if you think about the maturity schedule over the next couple of years, it's it's actually quite manageable. I think next year is is something less than seventy billion dollars, and if you aggregate the two years, it's it's around eight percent of the market. So again, a completely manageable number when you think about the amount of double Bs that are within that that number as well. So right. you don't really don't start to hit right. a pinch point from a maturity standpoint until till twenty twenty five. But on the bond side, you know, there's been this huge uptearing in, in quality that that's taken place. Really, since the global financial crisis, we're we're you know fifty percent double B today. Um, that's up fifteen hundred basis points since GFC. So the starting point here is is really strong, and and we're coming off you know really historical lows. So so then that actually leads another. We've got both folks from uh, the U.S., Europe, all over the world. How does that dynamic play when you look at Euro U.S. in terms of uh, uh, credit and credit opportunity? Right. So. So U.S. versus Europe, you know, I just described a U.S. market that that's improved materially over the last decade and a half to the point that that making historical references to spread levels becomes a bit problematic because of the rating composition today. Um, but if you look at, you know, that European high yield market, that's even higher quality than the U.S. market. Nearly 70 percent is double B, only 5% is triple C. So again, put this in context, European bond LTM default rate is 0.1%. Again, 0.1%. So I think what's unique about the European market right now from our perspective is this foreign exchange hedging. And as you, a lot of our, our global funds are the base currencies, US dollars. And as you hedge euros into US in, into USD, that base rate differential is like 300 basis points. Mm-hmm. And so, on a on a US dollar hedged equivalent yield, the European market's sitting at 11 percent. We're at nine percent in the US. And over the last decade, you've never seen a period where the dispersion in yields between these two markets has been greater. And so. The U.S. market, for the most part, is always traded wider than the European market. And you know, right now, you you have the European market that's actually at a steeper discount in terms of the the price. It's at eighty three versus the U.S., which is at eighty six. 
and it's a year shorter in duration. And that's really important as you think about the total return profile going forward. Now, you know, I, I think also to give a little bit of historical context, as you alluded to looking at the European spread, which is helpful, was if you look at the, the past four significant interest rate cycles, and generally high yield annualized returns were between six to eight percent. But I want to ask a, a different question that's in the mind of our investors now, which is, you know, we really can't always extrapolate, you know, past as prologue. And, you know, even though his, history would suggest that uh, clearly this is an attractive time, what's different about this rate cycle hike or, or uh, uh, interest rate hike cycle that requires you and your teams to think a little bit differently as opposed to what you're seeing over the past four? Right. Your point's taken. Uh, historically, as a high yield manager, if you were to tell me that rates were increasing, I would say, OK, no problem. Um you know, because high yield typically, you know, outperforms in a rising rate environment. It, it has negative correlation to rates. However, when you've seen the move that we've seen in rates, there's really just there's not enough spread buffer that can insulate you from that move. So, mm-hmm. um, we've been, you know, typically focused on credit risk. We're now having to manage, you know, at some level, rate risk is a large part of our market is is higher quality double B, and so um, the correlation with rates is is a lot higher. And so you've seen long duration double B credit down 20, 30 points. And I think that's the impact that that government rates have had on market prices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 50% of the global high yield markets trading at a price of below 85. This price level, again, historically is used as a barometer to measure credit stress in the market. Mm-hmm. And another me- measure of credit stress is, is what what percentage of the market is trading greater than a thousand basis points? That's eight percent. So historically, these measures have increased or decreased in tandem. But what you're seeing in today's market is this huge divergence that we just we we haven't seen this before, and that's entirely driven by the rate market. And so, you know, now you have the majority of the market that's trading at a massive discount, but that's not really credit related. And so that discount again it offers. A lot of convexity, and that that convexity creates that opportunity for higher total returns going forward. So, so Tunde Scott outlined the public markets, or particularly loan and bond, and some of the dynamics in terms of opportunity as well as the difference between U.S. and Europe. Your do your universe is emerging market uh, corporate credit, right? How does EM's picture look uh, similar or different relative to Scott's? Thanks, Mark. Um, Relatively similar, actually, but I, you know, before we go into the specifics, I'm going to say this is common misconception, though, that EM corporates is this illiquid, volatile asset class as an offshoot of uh, sovereign. But actually, the reality is totally different. So this is an asset class that has grown over the last couple of decades, and it's now $2.7 trillion. It's an asset class that's quite unusual in that it gives you the opportunity to access not just high yield corporate credit in emerging market countries, but also investment grade. So Mm -hmm. the indices that we follow, the universe is about 60% investment grade and about 40% high yield. Uh, And within that, um, you know, you have the opportunity to invest in about 60 underlying different countries across multiple tenors. You can get a 100-year bond in EM, you can get a 30-year bond, you can get a 10-year, you can get five non-call two. So it gives you a breadth of opportunities and permutations that you can play with. But coming back to the points that uh, Scott made, I think the dynamics are relatively similar in that, you know, when you look at where 
um, credit fundamentals are, especially in the current rising rate environment, a lot of the corporates that we see have been quite resilient, even with inflationary pressures. A lot of them have been able to largely, for now, pass through price increases to absorb a lot of the inflationary pressures without seeing uh, material deterioration in the in the corporate balance sheets. Understandably, that is still yet to maybe fully play out um, in corporate balance sheets. But you know, the average leverage um, in uh, EM high yield is currently about 1.8 turns of leverage, which is at all time lows, uh, at least for the last decade and a half. And the average leverage within investment grade corporate universe, EM investment grade corporate universe is one turn. Both of these are lower than their respective developed market counterparts in the sort of ratings buckets. The other thing is actually from where we are at the moment, default rates, um, EM has obviously had a bit of a torrid last 12 to 18 months. So default rates are at elevated levels at the moment. But actually, when you strip out Russia, China, Ukraine, you know, taking out the exogenous uh, events that we've had affecting our market, default rates have been very low in the low single digits. In 2020, for example, with uh, just after the COVID post the pandemic lockdowns, and we you know, the initial assumption was actually for 2020, we would get uh, quite elevated default rates in the double digits, but actually default rates in 2020 were only three and a half percent. Now, obviously, off the back of that, we then had the exogenous events with China and all whatnot, and we had default rates around seven percent last year and this year is trending around nine. For next year, given all of that has washed through, the expectation is ex-Russia, China, Ukraine, default rates still stay in the low single digit levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because the underlying emerging market countries themselves are much healthier. EM government debt uh, ex-China has been falling. Uh, private sector credit to GDP is lower. It's lower than developed markets. The underlying corporates themselves are much healthier with higher cash balances. So actually, the dynamics of very interesting. And then you look at the valuation piece, which is the final piece of this is with the exogenous shocks that we've had, actually, valuations are looking particularly interesting within the asset class because you can now buy, as Scott was saying, very similar markets. You know, it's very heavily weighted to investment grade and double Bs within our high yield segment of our market as well. It's quite heavily skewed to double Bs. But you look at the high yield segment of EM and you could spreads peaked around 720 basis points only a couple of weeks ago. And that's against a longer run average of about 500, 520. So you could see just how much is sort of built in at the current in the current market environment in terms of spread widening. And similar thing on the investment grade side where spreads are sort of currently peaked around 250 versus historical average of about 180. So fundamentals are quite decent, quite strong. Cash balances are pretty decent. Um, valuations are somewhat stretched, uh, so not stretched, but um, priced in a lot at the mm-hmm. moment. And, and default rates are set to sort of come out of the sort of tougher China, Russia, Ukraine impact. You, you, you mentioned China, and I know it's, it's hard to have a discussion with EM and not talk about China in specific. And so how do you anticipate China impacting the forward market and forward market returns? So China obviously has been, it's the largest constituent in our, our universe, accounting for uh, just around 20% of outstanding bonds. And then within the index, it accounts for about 7% of the index. So, you know, it's hard to talk EM without China, uh, but it has been the biggest attractor year to date. At the index level, it's down, you know, just over 17%. Um, 
how is this going to affect returns going forward? I think that's a function of um, how we're looking at uh, return compositions year to date. So the biggest attractor of returns year to date has been um, the China real estate sector. But the bulk of those names have now either defaulted or they're out of the index. So again, depending on how you look at it and what your views are on China, are you playing those from a distress perspective, i.e. through Stuart's sort of team's perspective, or are you playing it through a performing asset perspective? And that's what will really shape your expectations around returns um, vis-a-vis the future. But for the defaulted names, for example, a lot of them are trading in the sort of low single digit uh, price point. So trading anywhere from three to five, seven, eight cents. Mm-hmm. And initial recovery numbers for some of the preliminary uh, uh, restructuring plans that are out there suggest you could get recoveries between 50 to 70 cents. So again, mm-hmm. depending on what type of portfolio you're constructing and what angle you're playing it from, that could play a material uh, impact in the types of returns that you can get uh, from that. But overall, I'd say for EM, when I look back in time, is history uh, a, a, is history a good indicator of future performance? And the small print typically tells you past performance is no indication of future performance. But I think this time, when you look back to history, especially with the EM corporate asset class, previous bouts where you've had huge drawdowns in the asset class like you have had um, this year where, you know, in COVID in 2020, the asset class was down 17%. And during the European uh, sovereign debt crisis, the asset class was down 14%. Within 12 months from that maximum period of drawdown, you got double digit returns of uh, north of 20% in the asset Mm. class. And this time it's unlikely to be different because again, we are coming from a point where the average bond price within EM corporates is around 85 cents on the dollar. There's a huge amount of capital appreciation pricing, plus the elevated spread premium, which you should get some spread compression coming through as well. So very easily, you can see the size of uh, potential total returns that you can look for, even with the China sort of overlay that we discussed. Right, right. Now, I, I as we start to think about the public market opportunity, I know Tunde and Scott really had, had summed it up, and we do expect excess return and, and perhaps not as bad as folks fear. Now, let's shift to the private market dynamic, right? And, and clearly, uh, this is a discussion of the illiquidity risk premium uh, that we mentioned earlier, right? The spread above public markets to take a deal private. And for that, uh, we'll go to my colleague, Adam Wheeler. And so, Adam, as the co-head of the private markets team, you've got the luxury of of less day-to-day volatility in the portfolio. Uh, in fact, if I were thinking of a good Christmas gift to describe the middle market, I would go with fruitcake. It's always there. It's just always there. It, you can partake. It can be good, but it's just always there. It does not move. And so if uh, if you think about that, that doesn't mean – that the the private credit market doesn't itself face challenges. And so when you think of those challenges and when you think of kind of the the, the superior returns that have been generated to date, right, what are the dynamics that you see in middle market lending or direct lending today? I like your Christmas gift, John. Um, Look, I think there's there's really two parts to that question. There's the first part, what have you created? So – um, what portfolio have you created over the last couple of years? Because that's what's going to drive returns of the funds that you've been investing over that period of time. Because, you know, private credit's a little bit different to public markets. You have to actually have a, a, a strong origination sourcing platform to go and find stuff to invest in. And then you have to convert that opportunity into an investment. So it's the quality of your portfolio is driven by the quality of your 
origination capability and your also your investment philosophy and 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 your ability to convert an opportunity into an investment. So I think in in this asset class today, you, you will see. Uh, Sorry, I should take a step back. I think one of the criticisms is you see everyone's done the same over time in this asset class or everyone's very similar. I, I think what you will see over the next year or so is a bit of a shakeout in performance because no one's portfolio in this asset class is, is the same. Everyone sources different assets, so your risk profile is a little different, and therefore, and, and therefore, everyone's performance, I think, over the next next twelve months to eighteen months, will be different. And that's driven by how much risk you have taken two years ago or, or a year ago, pre all of the stuff that we've just been talking about that happened. So I think it's it's the consistency of that investment philosophy over over time will drive your performance. So that's kind of a backward looking. You know, what have we done? How's the portfolio holding up? And I think about, well, okay, so what has to your to your comment around it's always there? And and my joke about the ocean liner takes time to move. Look, I I I think what we have seen is, you know, I think Tunde referred to Ukraine as a kind of a black swan event. And I think you can put that as a marker in time when you started to see the private credit markets changed. So what you started to see is, you know, Scott's talked about the high yield markets, probably syndicated markets shutting down. There's been no new issuance in that market. So what's happened is basically private equity firms have gone to the the direct lending market to source debt for transactions. And I think initially you did not really see pricing move in the direct lending market. And that has sucked out a hell of a lot of capital. And so what we're now seeing, what we're seeing now is really a repricing of risk. And you're also starting to see um, a a change in terms, conditions and leverage to compensate for the different market conditions that that we're now living in. That makes complete sense, uh, particularly in the way that uh, illiquid and private credit markets can move uh, together uh, in that uh, as one shuts down, the other one can can effectively act as a as a stabilizer or an opportunity to effectively kind of uh, continue deal flow throughout uncertain economic times. And then certainly we see that happening. But here's here's an investment question. Right, Adam, because the, 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 the different tact is right. Often, one of the benefits of investing in the private credit class, many investors say, is the risk premium that you can get uh, to take illiquidity risk relative to liquid loans, right? And uh, as Adam, as, as we as a group look at private credit versus public markets, we can see that right now the, the, the steep price discounts in public markets effectively show parity from a yield perspective of public versus private assets, right, in, in general. So, so the investors is going to ask this very honest question. Why would I want to allocate to the private market today as when I'm getting effectively very similar returns in the public market context? Why wouldn't I just want to wait until that dynamic reverts? Yeah, it's a fair question. I, I mean, I think if you step back and ask, what are we trying to do in this asset class? So what we're trying and, and bearing in mind how we deploy capital. So you build a portfolio over time. It is very difficult to time your entry and your exit into uh, any liquid asset class. So what we're trying to do here is to deliver a consistent return through the economic cycle. So we're trying to deliver that basically clipping a coupon on a diversified portfolio when times are good and times are bad and deliver a pretty similar return through that cycle. And you do that by avoiding losing capital. That's effectively what we do. So we're driven by fundamental performance rather than by 
technical factors that you see in public markets that allow you to do a bit of timing of your entry and exit if you can, you know, get set. Um, so with that in mind, I think what's happening now is, you know, that ocean liner effect has kind of washed through. You are seeing, you know, a better pricing, better terms, you're getting stronger covenant packages in loan documents. So what we're doing now is is lending at lower leverage, lower leverage and better pricing, which will persist over to over the next over the tenor of all the all the uh, transactions that we're investing in. So we're actually setting ourselves up for outperformance over the next year or two, probably yep. two or three, to be honest. So that's what we're doing now. So you will see a bit of a step change in this vintage, I think, compared to last the last vintage, last couple of vintages in in the asset class. So, so that actually brings up a, a follow-on, which would be this. So, so we're focused in on true, boring is beautiful middle market companies, uh, EBITDA between uh, fifteen and, and forty million. Let's say an average at thirty. And so, then the question really is, Adam, in Europe or the United States, how are those companies built? to weather the economic storm relative to what exists in the higher yield or public marketplaces of companies with higher EBITDA. Some investors would say there's the potential that that the smaller the EBITDA, the higher the risk. And how would your response be? Yeah, I think that all comes back to your asset selection and what do you want to invest in. So again, sourcing capability, investment philosophy, you know, our approach is very much to to invest in companies that we think will persist through a cycle, fairly conservative approach to to deploying companies. So there are certain sectors that we just don't invest in. um, And we have the luxury of not worrying about an index and we just build a portfolio on a deal by deal basis, try to be well diversified across that portfolio, a very different level of diversification, I think, than you'd see in a high yield fund, but nevertheless, you know, in our view, pretty well diversified. So I think, you know, that that's the, the key driver for us there is how do you source build diversification, avoiding avoiding losses through a through a cycle. And then the US Europe dynamic, right? Clearly the markets are a bit different and you're going to hear two sides of great investment opportunity or too soon. How, how do we come out on the US Europe debate in private credit? Yeah, I, I think over the last couple of years we've seen Europe deliver, you know, slightly higher absolute returns, um, slightly better return return spread per turn of leverage. I think what we've seen is things adjust quite a bit over the last, you know, three or four months. I think you've seen both markets rise to a to fairly similar level. But I think what you have are different dynamics in each each of those markets. So, you know, you have um, banks that we compete with um, in the mid-market in Europe, which you don't have in the US. Those banks have retreat ret- pulled out of the the market at the moment. So if if anything, the competition is less in Europe, the funnel's a bit broader. Um, You know, US is a a bigger, deeper market that gives you more opportunities to invest in. So there are pros and cons in each market. Uh, But today, I think the return profile is is actually reasonably similar, which is kind of unusual or different from where we've been for four or five years. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it shows uh, kind of the, the the one constant we can all rely on is change. And so uh, no no better way to uh, to land change than on the desk of uh, Stuart Matheson, right? And so in terms of the Capital Solutions Group that also manages special situations or 
uh, special situation credit, there really are uh, a quite a bit of opportunities. And so interestingly, you know, Stuart, when, when things go sideways or you start to find problem credits, uh, they generally find uh, your desk. And uh, interestingly, uh, the investment in the distress cycle, you know, today uh, has a few different themes than perhaps it did in past cycles. And so the question really to start is, tell us about how the opportunity set in distressed debt and more broadly in these so-called opportunistic credit transactions, how has that morphed or changed relative to the last cycle that we all experienced? Thanks, John. I mean, I guess question when the last cycle was, we've had uh, relatively low defaults now for such a long period of time. But, but what we do, so opportunistic capital, special situations, now cap solutions, I think that's morphed significantly over the last few years. And today it's it's much broader than the traditional perception of being uh, buying discounted opportunities in the secondary public markets. Um, that's in part due to those low default rates, as, as I said. I think it's also down to the fact that Documentation is a lot more accommodating than it's been uh, historically. At least it has been up until the, the current vintage of deals. And that's really brought around the ability, you know, combined with um, supportive policy for investors to look at things like basket financing or subsidiary financing. So different ways to bring capital uh, into companies and really shift that model away to something that you know looks a little bit more uh, like what we see in private markets. Um, we certainly found. Uh, a fair few places to deploy capital in that way, and it's worked out well. Um, and as you do that, you become known for being someone who can execute, someone who can provide solutions. And so, success we get success, and 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 certainly now we're finding we're finding people coming to us and saying we saw that transaction that you did there. Is there something we can we can look at here? I think the growth um, in the private finance market is also interesting. I, mean, I think Adam's right to say that. Um, obviously, the, the, the portfolio performance is based on what happened over the last couple of years. As that market has grown, there are clearly going to be some situations where things haven't worked out quite as well uh, as, as people may have hoped. And there will be some investors who are either uncomfortable or are unwilling to, to kind of hold and support companies through those types of challenging situations. And again, that has I think that gives us an opportunity to step in. So just broadening out that um, that overall corporate credit space either in public or private markets, I think you know, the ability to kind of engage and transact in a different way. Um, the firm has been very supportive to us and, and, and my team and our team as, we, as, we, as we've really grown that business. Um, and that, that's included tapping into the much broader sourcing channels that we have across bearing. So five years ago, I would have said that the, the greatest strength that we had was the, the ability to cover you know, 1,800 corporate issuers through the, through the high oil business. I mean, today, it's just as important that we have uh, a great sourcing network and partnerships with you know, over 175 uh, wow. private equity sponsors. And, and that list continues. So, so we, we've really been able to tap across uh, the whole uh, sourcing franchise that Bearings has. And you know, we've been really um, surprised and pleased at how much opportunity that's throwing up for us to, to do interesting things with capital. So you, you've mentioned, you know, uh, and and complexity premium or or opportunistic credit can have a really wide berth, and just like you say, it's just as wide as Bearings Investment Funnel. Uh, so too can be the, the the diversity of the types of deals that you look at. And so uh, when you're when you're going with such a wide mandate, there's going to be a, a level of skill or skill set that's required uh, that's fairly unique. And so I, I'd almost say, in your own words. Tell us what the, the complexity premium that you like to prosecute, you know, what is it? Define it. But then most importantly, 
what's the skill set that managers need in order to effectively capture it? Right. What's the skill set that you believe me is, is most needed across to invest across a wide frame of complex situations? So I would look at complexity premium as, as really the space where you, you don't necessarily receive a, a debt to support the transaction. And, and in order to actually do the deal, you need to be creative around the solution, how it's sourced and how it's structured. Mm. Um, that, that really plays into the skill set that um, of, of the Cap Solutions team over the last decade. We, over that period of time, I think we've um, led uh, restructuring transactions for over 150 corporate issuers, both uh, across the US uh, and developed Europe. And, and really, if I, I think about what we're doing is we're looking at complex situations where we're digging in on, on diligence, we're identifying risks, and then we're negotiating those transactions. So it's very similar to what you might consider to be a, a subsidiary refinancing or, or a stressed refinancing um, in, in a primary market sense uh, today. And that's not to say that we, you know, this is not about um, identifying uh, businesses that we don't understand. So you know, first and foremost, we still have to understand and like the fundamentals of the business that we're that we're trying to invest in. So you know, that, that's something that will exist across all of the the various businesses. But if we can if we can find that situation and source that pre, that complexity premium in a different way, then I think we can start to generate those outsized returns. And 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 how do we do that? That that can be sourcing a scarce asset. So can we identify something? That other people haven't seen. Can we get there early? Can we be, be part of a part of an investment that um, we get in at a good price before really the market wakes up to that being an opportunity? You know, how can we use our wider sourcing framework to see things that other people don't see? Perhaps outside of the corporate credit universe, we started to look at things like pharma royalties, and again, we've we've been able to source some nice um, nice opportunities there with with some really good kind of asymmetric upside, and again. I think that goes that plays into that theme of having lower correlation to traditional public market trades. Um, always, always focused on that creative deployment of capital. So if we see situations where companies need money, um, there's normally ways that they can get that in. Can we can we kind of use our relationships with businesses to propose solutions, possibly design uh, the collateral package, the the construct of those instruments, um, and then lastly. Things that are challenging, so things where we know we're going to need to roll up our sleeves, but where we think that we have a, a strong influence and understanding of the situation, so we can we can really price that risk. So that's for me what complexity premium is. It, it doesn't have to be all of those things. It often can be many of those things. Yeah. Uh, but generally speaking, if we can if we can find a nice business with that setup, then we think we can find some really. Uh, nice risk-adjusted returns. I mean, ultimately, I think this is very complementary to traditional private credit Perfect. strategies. Yep. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think it will return probably something that sits between private credit and more equity-like strategies. Uh, but, but certainly, I think it's a complement to, to what other people from the from the traditional private credit space uh, are doing uh, in their investment universe. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, actually, as we're 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 nearing the tail end of the conversation, I thought the best way uh, to cap it uh, would be to look at a quote. And then the quote's a great one. Uh, and it, it, bas- it says this, it's a fact of experience that when the interest of money is 2% or less, capital habitually immig- uh, immigrates and is wasted on foolish speculation, which never yield any adequate return. If the old 
tried and safe investments no longer yield their accustomed returns, we all know what that's like, we must take what they do yield or try what is untried. We must either be poorer or less safe, less opulent or less secure. And so when you think about that quote in the context of the last two years, here's the question I'll leave for each of you. First, do you agree? And second, if you do, which side of the quote are we on for the next five to 10 years, richer or poorer? And so, Scott, we'll start with you. Okay, so uh, not exactly sure the, the historical analog associated with, with that quote, but look, I, I think in, in many ways it's it's relevant to this whole QE era, and it really almost extends beyond just the, the, the past couple of years and, and really some of the unintended consequences associated with that. You know, we've seen, you know, zero interest rate policy. We've seen negative interest rate policy. We've seen, I don't know, trillions of, of negative yielding debt. Um, and again, this all drives, you know, investor behavior. Um, you know, it, it, you know, we had this whole Tina, there is no alternative. It's, it's, uh, you know, that became a r- rallying cry for, for investors, um, really out of necessity because, uh, yield became so scarce and it, it pushed, you know, it, it had its, um, you know, it pushed investors out on the risk curve when, you know, maybe they didn't want to be that far out there. And that, you know, for, for a good part of time, they were rewarded for that. But it also increases speculation. We've seen that. And it was, as you've seen air come out of the market, um, you've seen the, the that unwind. And you can see, see it in the SPAC market. You've seen it in crypto. You've seen it in parts of tech. Um and look, this has been this this cheap money has been a a really a golden air for private equity, and I think that model may be you know a bit more challenged going forward, just in terms of level of returns. Is you know you look at these deals, um, you know Adam talked about the, the 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 deals that they're looking at now. They're the terms are different, and in many cases, private equity is going to have to put more equity in. That's going to lower their their returns. Um, so it, it does feel like we're in the midst of of a, of a regime change in rates and you know not that there won't be some level of retracement but again can governments extract themselves from policies of the past and adopt policies that are are really more orthodox in nature and can we make that transition from from qe to qt mm-hmm. um it to the extent we we can you're, you're starting to create the case for credit versus equity because at at zero interest rate policy that's that has been hugely accretive for equity multiples, yeah. and I think we're at the point where, at the very least, that discussion is becoming, you know, far more balanced than it's been. I think there was always the quote that unicorns loved grazing on the fields of zero rates. Uh, and so, you know, Tunde, the question I'll, I'll pose to you similar. So, if you're if you're looking at, at today's environment, do you believe right that that effectively fueled mass speculation? And if you're looking forward, where would you be looking to allocate capital? Uh, so I, I think I'm very much with Scott there in that, you know, some of the moral hazard of the central banks constantly bailing the market out mm. <laughs> at the hint of uh, any bit of stress. And unfortunately, we are now going into the era where high tides will no longer lift all boats. And so when rates were at 2% or sub 
you know, if you made an error and you picked a wrong credit, it, you know, it was a relatively inexpensive error to make. But I think mm. when rates are much higher now, the stakes are much higher. So you really have to roll your sleeves up and really do the credit work. You have to truly understand what credit risk it is that you're taking because it is an expensive mistake to make Good when point. rates are sort of 5% range versus when they're sub 2%, right? So to come to your uh, main question, where would we put money to work now? I think for us, again, the team and I, we focus on bottom-up fundamental credit research. You know, we're not buying things to be on a trend or the momentum of things. And so when I think about where we would put new capital to work today, I think a place that stands out over the next few years is Mexico. And that's really because it's going to be one of the beneficiaries of this uh, nearshoring phenomenon that we've been hearing about post-COVID. And we've mm-hmm. just come back from a recent trip to Mexico. And we're starting to see the beginnings of that activity happening. There's a lot of real estate and land being purchased in the northern part of Mexico to build new plants and facilities. And obviously, these greenfield sites take a couple of years to come through. And then you get that second, third order effect of that creating jobs and uh, stimulating growth. So I see Mexico some a place that should benefit from that and lots of different pockets of that um, economy should benefit. Mm-hmm. So that would be a place to put money to work if it was new money, obviously bearing in mind the political cycles that you get in LATAM as well. Got it. Got it. Now, Adam, I, I want to go I want to go to you because remember about a year ago, a uh, majority of our private credit brethren or more importantly, the obligors or the borrowers went to sleep thinking they borrowed at 7% or 6 and now they woke up and they're, they borrowed their entire stack at 12%, right? If you think of that cataclysmic change, right, how do you think about today's market? And more importantly, that being the case, what's the smartest way to approach the current market today? I think your opening comment, I think it's going to be problematic for a lot of people. So I think, you know, to to summarize some of the things that everyone else has said, I think you're going to see a transfer of uh, return from private equity to credit. You're going to see underperformance in PE um, will benefit from rising base rates. Um, and it, it'll be about, to Tunde's point, about asset selection and avoiding losses. You get, and the, the next 12 to 18 months are going to be interesting because it's about picking the bit. It's going to be a, a difficult external environment where you're going to see probably softening demand, eroding margins, and therefore less cash flow and therefore less serviceability. So you're going to have to see a reset in in multiples of businesses from an equity perspective. We haven't seen that yet. So I think there's that there's going to be a bit of a reset. Right. Will they support their transactions, Adam? That's always a great. There was always that beautiful invisible hand that you know private equity is just going to dive in and and provided a, a significant amount of capital to support it. Do you expect that to be the case? With some sponsors, I, I, some I think from out. Yeah. Uh, I mean that that's why we deal with private equity firms because we want them to support their businesses with cash. We don't want to be the the, the person with deep pockets in a transaction. We want that to be our private equity partner. But we also have to be in a position where we pick the right business. If it underperforms, you know, we're willing to take ownership of that business and manage it through and then it's come out of the other side something and sell it to get a recovery. I think that's the big difference between the way you operate in a direct lending space than you operate in a in a bank, which is very similar to what we do. Rather than cut and run, you own and operate. You're right. You're right. Now, Stuart, you're going to get the last word here. Uh, and so when we get to the end of 2023, 
All right. And think about that as a cycle plays through, as we've seen, uh, uh, you know, the opportunities or, or the potential coming opportunities. Where do you believe the most attractive opportunities are going to be and how do investors position themselves now to capitalize on what we know is headed our way? I think from from Cap Solutions, um, I think we're looking at um, providing liquidity solutions to companies. Um, I would say liability management financing, so potentially engaging in in some stressed and situational refinancing activity. And then lastly, I think dislocation in in, in the public market. So this this is not an index comment, but on an individual name basis, the ability now to target some um, some off the run kind of traditional, more traditional special situations type situations where perhaps you end up with weak holders of assets who are, who are forced to sell. I think that's the one where you need to be careful on timing. And from an investor perspective, however, I, I think that there's, there's still a lot to play through. So my advice would be at the moment, this is about positioning uh, alongside flexible capital, um, alongside operating models that you trust, uh, and with managers who have deep teams to go and execute. Couldn't agree more. And uh, and with that, I know we're uh, coming near the tail end. We've got a, f- a few questions in. So my my expectation would be this: you know, we'll uh, we do plan on reaching out and always uh, being available for any additional questions that that come in. But a lot of the ones here have uh, have been asked as they've started to surface uh, throughout the uh, throughout the conference call. Uh, guys, I want to thank you so much for joining. Uh, it means a lot. Uh, I know how busy we all are as we head into the year end. And more importantly, I also want to thank those that are in the audience. Um, thank you for your time today. Uh, we always look for these types of opportunities to be productive conversations. Uh, my colleague, Greg Campion, clearly a, a master at both uh, both the discussion and market environments with his podcasts. And so uh, we always look forward to interfacing uh, across the waves. And we are uh, definitely looking forward to these topics uh, becoming uh, you know a part of our 2023 perspective as we all prepare for uh, uh, moving from this year uh, into the next. You guys can subscribe on our website. It's all very easily accessed. And most importantly, thank you always for your committed partnership. Uh, we greatly value it. And all the best uh, to you and your families uh, for this uh, Christmas and holiday season. And so uh, with that, I want to thank everyone and uh, we'll sign off. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to episode number six of season seven of Streaming Income. If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest thoughts on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate and emerging markets, make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, that's a new one, and more. We publish a new episode every other week. And if you have specific feedback, you can email us at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.